0: Welcome to another exciting episode of The Tax-Efficient Investor. Listen in as host Michael Johnston demystifies tax-efficient tactics to help you grow your wealth. We break down complex tax strategies and make them simple to understand and easy to implement. From HSAs to IRAs, 1031s, trusts, and more, we cover it all here on The Tax-Efficient Investor.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm Michael Johnston. Joining me today to talk about donor-advised funds is Kim Ledger and Joe Gianforte. Kim is the Vice President of Complex Assets. Joe is the Director of Advanced Philanthropic Accounting at REN, which is North America's largest independent philanthropic solutions provider. I got through that part. I think that was the hard part. Uh, Kim, Joe, thanks for joining me today.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure. Happy to be here.
1: I'm excited to talk about donor advised funds today. This is something I get uh, a lot of questions on. I've gotten a lot recently, um, unfamiliar to a lot of people. Um, so we're going to get into the weeds here a little bit, but let's start high level. What is what is a donor advised fund? Uh, what's the elevator pitch, the executive summary?
2: Think of a, a donor advised fund as a segregated fund that's held by a sponsoring charity. So I can donate money or assets. To a donor advised fund it's held by a charity i get an immediate tax deduction now and the charity holds on to that account for me and i stay on as a advisor to the account i can advise on investments i can advise on who receives grants
1: Hmm. got it um so so who should who can who should who who typically is setting up a donor advised fund
2: Your biggest candidates are going to be those holding highly appreciated assets. Think of that stock you've been holding on for years and is now worth twice as much as when you purchased it, or you're holding on to a very valuable family business interest that you're looking to sell pretty soon. Those people who wish to avoid those capital gains on selling those assets, the way to do that is to put those assets into a donor advised fund, you avoid the capital gains tax, plus get a charitable tax deduction in the year you contribute it.
0: That is spoken like a true tax guy, <laughs> a true accounting guy, uh, because the. It's also a great way for people to leave a legacy to their children and have the kids to carry on that legacy. So um, you have that piece of it because the donor gets to recommend uh, grants to multiple charities and do that over time. So there's no there's no limit to when when they can do that.
2: And they can leave their children as their successor advisors. So when I pass away, my children can be the advisors on this account and they continue my legacy of philanthropy. Philanthropy, Not that's it. a tough one. <laughs> it yeah, can be, some, yeah.
1: yeah. We've got some tongue twisters in here. I didn't realize how how hard philanthropic, <laughs> philanthropy, all these
2: <laughs> <laughs> It you know, can be a mouth. Yeah. yeah. Another great um, person you might consider a donor-advised fund are those who are looking to plan their estates. You leave part of your estate to a donor-advised fund, that's going to be yeah. a charitable deduction to your estate. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Okay, interesting. I want to I want to come back to that. So, just to talk through an example here, let's say you know, let's say I bought a uh, hundred thousand dollars of let's pick Apple stock. Could be anything, and that's worth now worth, let's say it's ten x, and it's now worth a million dollars. So, if I look to sell that, if I sell that, I'm facing nine hundred thousand dollars in capital gains and a pretty big tax bill. So you're saying another option is you donate that highly appreciated stock. You donate the stock directly to a donor-advised fund. Is that right? And then you don't get hit with the tax bill and you get credit for the full, the full amount, the, the market value of what you're donating. Is that right?
2: That's correct. Market value. And remember that gifts of non-cash assets are subject to 30% of the donor's adjusted gross income. Cash gifts to DAF, in contrast, are subject to 60% of adjusted gross income.
1: Got it, so that refers to the the deduct, the maximum deduction that that the the donor is eligible for, is that right?
2: Right, any unused deductions that aren't taken this year can be carried forward for five years.
1: Got it. So you you can't offset all of your AGI for for this year, but you can offset a significant portion of it. And um, whatever you don't offset this year, you get to carry forward. Um, So why are these donor advice funds have, you know, there's there's some impressive numbers about how quickly they're growing in popularity. Um, Why is that? Why are these becoming so popular now?
0: You know, what's interesting is that um, donor advice funds were started in the 1930s. So they've been around for a long time. And it wasn't until they were recognized in uh, the 2006 Pension and Protection Act that they they really they were they were recognized as a as an entity at that point. So they've gained some popularity since then. I think the number was about thirty one billion in donor advised funds at that time. And you think about, you know, primarily the thought about them with uh, uh, Community foundations and by uh, 2021 they've grown to over 230 some billion dollars so in 17 short years, they increased by over 200 billion dollars, so there is, they are more popular. My goal is, so have you ever been to a barbecue, Joe? How many times do you get asked, what do you do for a living? And you try to explain that you work in the donor advice fund world. How fun would it be to be at a barbecue or some uh, charity, you know, a cocktail party where people understand what a donor advice fund is? So we still have to have a ways to go, but they are gaining in popularity. And as far as a charitable vehicle goes, there are some of the, they are one of probably the easiest charitable vehicle
2: um, out there. Short of writing a check to charity, it's yeah. one of the easiest, more comp- vehicles that you're going to give to charity. Mm-hmm.
0: But I think mean, people okay. like the ease of use. It's quick to open up. They don't have like a, a family foundation. They don't have uh, to engage an attorney to set up the the, um, the fund or have a document about that um they don't have to do their own tax return with it so it's ease of use what other things can you think of
2: lower administrative burden yeah some other charitable gifts require more work from the donor DAFs. the charity takes care of all the tax work the compliance vetting charities the donor is just there to advise on how those funds are are granted
1: yeah Great. So let's let's talk through this from the beginning. Let's use. I, I want to come back to the more complex assets, but let's just use a, a simplified example. In this case, where you're donating, let's say some appreciated stock. Talk through it from start to finish. Let's say I decide I want to set up a donor advised fund. Um, let's say I've got five million dollars in, and in highly and appre- appreciated stock um, that I want to stock and mutual funds that I want to want to put into this donor advised fund. How do I do it from from kind of start uh, to finish?
0: Um, Speaking generally, uh, DAPs in general. So you're going to have an application. Um, It's usually a pretty simple document. Every one I've seen have been pretty, pretty simple documents um, to complete. You'll open, most likely open an investment account um, that your uh, financial advisor can open, get that open for you, um, depending on where you're uh, where the program is, the sponsoring charity is, but that's, and that investment account, I think this is helpful too, is opened in the name of the sponsoring charity. Hmm. So at, when I was an advisor, and that was, and I was just learning about donor advice, funds. I think that surprised me. So it's opened in the name of the charity for, so like in a, um, a Renaissance example, Renaissance Charitable Foundation, Inc., and then for the benefit of, or... Care of or attention, the name of the DAF, if you want to. Uh, I guess it's not for benefit of, is it?
2: <laughs> but, no, right. Yeah, but
0: it's. Um, but anyway, you open that mm-hmm. that investment account, and and then you have access via an online portal, and it, So it's pretty simple. Then at that point, um, after it's opened, then and you can name it whatever you want. Um, I could even name, I could name most often you'll see like the Ledger Family Fund. Um, but I could name it Ledger Family Foundation if I wanted to. Um, so there, you know, you have a lot of uh, leeway as far as naming convention as well. So that that's really about it.
1: And then what about what about the actual uh, making the making the gifts? So let's say there's five million dollars in here. Are there rules about how how quickly this money has to go out to charities? What's that process look like in terms of? And, and I think you said the the sponsoring the sponsoring charity. <laughs> Um, but I, I think that there's kind of a couple layers here. There's a sponsor and charity that then is ultimately making making gifts out to additional charities. Or am I am I misunderstanding there?
2: Well, let me yeah. give you an example uh, yeah. to show you how this works. Let's say right. this year I um, I'm going to have a big windfall event, and I decide to put a big chunk of that into a donor advised fund. Versus yeah. that, now I could decide to write a one million dollar check to my church tomorrow and get the tax deduction right away. But that's a lot of money to give away at once, especially for people who might have that one in a once in a lifetime windfall event, like many of our listeners do. I don't want to give a million dollars right away. I put it in a donor advised fund next year. I can write 10,000 to my church, 20,000 to the March of Dimes, 30,000 to someone else. The next year, keep going, keep going. I don't have to spend that right away. Mm -hmm. I don't have to spend it at all, depending on the program. Yep. but there's usually maybe like a 5% grant requirement with a lot of programs so mm-hmm. but not all but it's but
0: it's not a it's not a legal requirement it's not a legal requirement family foundations you have to have yeah. um, you know the 5% payout donor advice funds right now do there is legislation out there um and there has been for some time that that um, they'd like to have passed it's not It's not been passed yet, but um, we anticipate that that will likely come. For now, um, most donor advice funds have a payout rate of about 20 20
2: to 25%. Yeah, they go much bigger than the 5% um, traditionally.
0: Um, Yeah. So you just go online and recommend a grant. And as long as the grant is to a charity that a donor advice fund is allowed to make a grant to, then they can do that. Some programs will have their own restrictions. You know, if it's if it's a program, you know, based on um, a a faith based organization may have certain restrictions or others may have um, like environmental causes or other kind of causes Mm -hmm. that they may have restrictions as to who they're willing to make grants to. But uh, generally speaking, um, in the in the big a lot of the big sponsors are agnostic on as to who they is going to receive that.
1: Got it. So even though the the checks may not be going out the door, to in Joe's example, um, some of your church, some of the March of Dimes, et cetera, et cetera, those checks may not be going out the door until next year, the year after, et cetera. You get the benefit of the, uh, the 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 max efficiency in in the in year one when you when you set up the donor advised fund. Is that right?
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it, it seems some... like
1: there's also a, a use case here for folks who are interested in in giving to charity, but uh, maybe are giving at a level that's going to be under um, under their standard deduction. So let's say someone's giving fifteen thousand dollars a year to charity. If they're if they're married, the the standard deduction is going to be what I think it's close to twenty eight thousand dollars this year. So, um, so so they wouldn't be itemizing. Let's say they're not itemizing. They really don't get any benefit from that charitable deduction, but they could. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the term is, but they could kind of bunch them or, or, or bunch them uh, several, yeah. several years mm-hmm. at once yep. and then get over that threshold. Am I thinking about that right? That that's a potential application here as well?
2: You're exactly right. Mm-hmm. A lot of people haven't been itemizing their deductions for the past five years because of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So they don't get as much bang for their charitable contributions as they used to if they're not itemized, but by bunching, you put that big windfall event in there, you put all your money into one year, you get that itemized deduction above your standard deduction to offset that windfall event. The next year when your income goes back to normal, you're back to the standard deduction. Keeping in mind that uh, at the end of 2025, the standard deduction amounts will uh, revert to pre-2017 levels if Congress doesn't extend. Them. So yep. this calculus could change in the future.
1: Yeah, that's a great point about about what happens in the future. But I think it's often overlooked. I think I, I was looking this up before I jumped on here. I think it's it's almost ninety percent of people take the standard deduction. It was eighty seven point three percent in, in twenty twenty. Um, so you know, I think there's kind of this misconception that, that there's a tax incentive to to give to charity. That's, that's not the case actually for a lot of people. Um, unfortunately, if you're, if you're not itemizing, you're not generally getting a, a tax benefit for doing so. But this is a way um, for for some folks to who can bunch and get over that uh, that standard deduction to to take advantage of it. So interesting application there. Um, okay, so we've we've talked through uh, kind of this plain vanilla example of I'm um, I'm putting in some uh, some appreciated stock. I think I use the example of asset, uh, of Apple stock. Um, but Kim, your title is VP of Complex Assets. Joe, you're director of Advanced Philanthropic Accounting. So I'm guessing that you deal with uh, more than people who are just donating kind of the the plain vanilla use case of of Apple or Tesla stock that's appreciated. Um, Can you talk through how this works with illiquid assets, what the complexities that arise are?
0: Gosh, I could talk about this all day, so I'll (laughs) keep it it brief. But yeah, we have, um, it's the coolest job ever, and I get to work on some really interesting things. Um, but 98% of what we work on are some sort of private business interest. So okay. it could be, um, you know, an operating business, it could be private equity, it could be some sort of um, hedge fund. So I, I lump all of those into the business interest gifts. But um, like in 2021, we did so many, um, you know, there was a lot of M&A transactions going. And um, I mean, everybody looked exhausted that year. And that was in that field. And, uh, but because deals were happening fast and we had to react quickly. So, how that works is they would make the gift prior to entering into any sort of binding agreement with a transaction. Once you get to a certain point, it can be too late. You don't avoid capital gains, but if you get it at the right, if your timing is right, you make the gift before there's a binding agreement, and um, and then the, the transaction goes through. The then the donor advice fund is treated as any other shareholder, and um, the donor, like with publicly traded stock, you avoid the capital gains, and you get a fair market value charitable deduction. The charitable deduction is determined by a qualified appraisal. So. Um, does not have to be done prior to the gift? It can be done after after the gift. So that's one example of, of um, charitable gifts, I mean, of um, complex assets. And we do a lot of those. I've made a career out of it. So
2: yeah. process. Yeah, yeah. sometimes we'll have to review, if it's a a private equity interest, we'll have to, there might be some level of review, surface level review of financial statements, tax returns to make sure that this gift is not going to run afoul of any um, tax holding rules
0: yeah there, or, it's, a, a lot of it's a good things fit for our
2: organization some gifts just aren't a good fit
0: yeah and the, we and we um there are a lot of things to consider for sure
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, other assets that people give um, the passion assets um and we're finding I've received a lot of questions they're they're the things that are a lot of fun to talk about you know like the um we we helped one donor whose husband had um, paid for the recovery of a, a a uh, sunken treasure and he had this one uh, emerald that he he saved and gave to her in 1987 as her engagement ring created an engagement ring and she sold she made a gift to her donor advised fund of that ring we sold wow. it uh Sotheby's sold it for us and um, it went to help the Ukraine cause so you know that is and that sold for 1.2 million dollars so wow. that's one example, um, gold, gold coin. We've done a fair number of those gifts this past year. Um, some, uh, a book collection, um, some kids were father passed away and being a book collector was well known. And mm-hmm. so we, we sold that at auction and uh, with Heinemann in Chicago. So it, lots of cool things there that we can, that can be given to a donor advice fund too. So, yeah. Um,
1: so, so I think in in general, it sounds like folks would come to you say they've got um, some asset. It could be shares in a, a family business, an a, a yeah. ownership interest in that. It could it could be um, a physical collectible, yeah. books, gold, um, think a ring. And they say, hmm. I think I have a liquidity event for this on the horizon, or I'm interested and in, uh, mm-hmm. I'm interested at some point down the road and in, in selling this, mm-hmm. and I want. When that happens, I want some of the proceeds to go to charities and I want to do that in a tax efficient way. Um, Is is that kind of the the general use case of someone who comes to you looking for the the best way to um, they they clearly want to they want to support a charity, but they want to get as much tax benefit out of it as possible. Is that right?
0: Absolutely. Now with the artwork, it's not always the best. Uh, from a tax perspective because it's anytime you give something like that to a donor advice fund it's going to be an unrelated use and so you're going to get the lesser of cost basis or fair market value so where that makes sense is if you want to support more charities than just one hmm. um if you want to which is the case with the book collection they wanted they'd already given some books to um uh, a favorite university and then they gave the other half to the donor advice fund so that they could give to multiple charities over years and in that case because they were inherited the tax basis and the fair market value were the same but for some people it just avoiding the capital gains is is um enough of a benefit to them if it's a, a greatly appreciated asset avoiding capital gains is important so yeah
2: just absolutely. something
0: it's a case, it's very case-specific with those. Another really popular complex asset gift is real estate. Okay. And, um, we've seen a lot more crypto not that lately, but we, there, you know, when
2: crypto
0: is yeah, <laughs> on the rise, we get a, a fair number of crypto gifts. We get um, so a variety of things. Anything that's, non, uh, that's a non-marketable security or cash is considered a complex asset.
1: Got it. So what about, you didn't mention equity awards. Um, Do you deal with those at all as well?
0: Well, you know, I get a lot of questions Mm -hmm. about those in January, early February, um, the beginning of the year when when things begin to best. And unfortunately, um, equity compensation um, or or, um, equity awards as compensation are tend not to be great gifts to charity. Number one, you can't, often you can't even make the gift
2: non-transferable they're
0: non-transferable
2: restrictions
0: because it's part of a bonus plan you know if for in most of these but if it's a stock an incentive stock option then you have the donor when they make that gift regardless of who sells that that option the donor is the one who has the tax liability so it they might as well exercise it. it hold now if they hold the stock in for a year so it becomes long-term capital gain property that's when you when you make the gift is after it's been held for a year so um, i see people who have spreadsheets they'll have stock and they'll look each year and they and that's what you do you kind of ladder it so you go back and look at what you've held so first year you don't get much of a break you look at your other portfolio you look at mm-hmm. other assets but after that first year then you start look you know you you can track um, your lowest basis stock and make gifts
1: accordingly. So. Got it. So, Kim, you mentioned. I want to ask you. I want to ask both of you about what are the mistakes that you see people make, or what do people screw up? Kim, you mentioned earlier that there's a certain point at which uh, yeah. the transaction has been agreed to, or you're kind of too far. Um, yeah. the, the genie's too far out of the bottle um, to, to yeah. be able to make the gift. W- what else do people? Do people screw up, or what do you help them? Um, what would they screw up if they didn't have your help?
0: The biggest one is waiting too long, is waiting too far Mm -hmm. into the deal, or like in real estate, if they've signed, huge, they've signed, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's such a big part. Um, Another one is uh, the qualified appraisal. Um, You'll see, which is substantiates the charitable deduction Mm -hmm. that they're claiming. So there'll be mistakes on that where it's, they don't get it signed by the charity, they don't get it Mm -hmm. signed by the appraiser. There's some Mm -hmm. mistake in how that document is completed. Um,
2: are- it's, it's, it's getting, the appraiser needs to be qualified. That's where some people get wrong. They need, they need to fill out the form 8283 correctly. Um, that's where people get hit up is they don't fill it out correctly, or they don't get a qualified appraiser. Mm-hmm. They don't get the appraiser to sign it in the right places. Yeah. And that appraisal has to be done. The timing is 60 days before the gift up through the time you file your tax return. That's when you can get that appraisal done. So you don't have to get it right away. You can wait a few months.
0: Yeah. I usually, if people you know, are going through a transaction, I, I, usually, I, I usually say, get it done right afterwards before you forget.
2: Exactly. Because
0: what you don't want to do is scramble right, you know, two weeks before um, you're trying to get your taxes filed. So yeah, sure. if you file sure, in yeah. October, you have until then, but I mean, why wait? You have yeah. all the documents. If things are fresh in your mind, get it done then.
1: And when you're talking about the the appraisal, you're talking about for the more complex assets where you can't easily assign a market yes. value to that. Is that right? It might be books. Yes. It might be real estate. It might be um, some, yes. a, right. some jewelry. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um, great, would question, right? That would be fascinating to, to see uh, how the valuations are determined for all these things. It's, you know, it's easy for, in my example of Apple or tes, Tesla stock, it's easy enough. Um, but for for some of these alternative assets, it's, uh, you, you need that appraisal done to to figure it out.
0: Make sure that the appraiser too knows what your purpose is when you yeah. get it because you're you mean if you think about it you want with estate planning, you want nice big discounts with charitable giving you want really small discounts. So it's probably best not to do those in the same year and to mm-hmm. uh, you know do it doing your planning ahead of time. even if you don't see yeah. uh, something on the horizon, have a plan in place of what you're going to do when the time arises. Because I've seen people who have had to scramble because they weren't expecting a transaction and something came up that was too good to to pass Mm -hmm. out. So being ready, I guess, is is another good a good thing.
1: Yeah. So I think what you're you're referring to, Kim, is is sometimes if you use the example of, of someone who owns shares in a family business. Um, depending on the transaction, you might want a high valuation or a low valuation. Yeah. If you're if you're donating to to charity, you generally want as as high valuation as possible to maximize your deduction. If you're doing yes. uh, in a lot of estate planning exercises, you want uh, you want a lower valuation. Um, and yeah. and with these. Uh, liquid, privately held assets that there's not an, an open market for, there can you know you can generally uh, argue or make it a case for kind of a range of values. It, it's not you, know, you can't just look at the big board and see what that security is trading for that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a more complex exercise to determine um, the you know the, the value of it, the fair market value of it, as well as any applicable discounts. Um, so I, I think what you're saying is. Good to not do those in the same year, so you don't have one valuation where you're uh, right. you, you want a high one and one where you want a, a low one. That probably raises some <laughs> some red flags if you get audited.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. Um, so we talked a lot about uh, a lot about the the um, donor advised funds. One of the the cousins, or I don't know if that's the right terminology, but in my mind it is, is a, a charitable remainder trust works in some in some ways similar, in some ways different. Can you kind of explain how that's an alternative?
2: Sure. Um, just real basic, um, a, a charitable remainder trust is a grantor puts money into a irrevocable trust. It means a private beneficiary to receive an income stream for usually the beneficiary's life. And then when that beneficiary passes away, they will the what's left in the trust goes to charity. The charity needs to be named in the trust document. Um, that's basically what it is. In a nutshell, how that differs from a DAF. Well, I would ask, do you if you're going to give a charitable gift, is an income stream, an annual income stream important to you? Mm-hmm. If if an annual income stream is something you're interested, a rem- charitable remainder trust is the way to go. You've got a partial charitable deduction. You don't get the full charitable deduction, you just get a, a present value basically of the charitable remainder, and you get an income stream every year for your life. And then when you die, the remainder goes to charity. Um, with the donor advised fund, there's no income stream to you personally, yep. but you get the full charitable deduction, the full fair market value charitable deduction with your donor advised fund. Another big difference is uh, the compliance and administrative costs of a charitable remainder trust are much greater than a donor advised fund. You need a lawyer to help draft it with the documents. You need a CPA to prepare an annual return. You need to get a K-1 every year from the trust that shows your share of the beneficiary share of the income. Um, and there's just the filing the returns alone is a, a task that a lot of trustees don't want to deal with but the donor advised fund, the charity, sponsoring charity takes care of all the administrative work and you're just on there as a grant advisor. So uh, I think the real difference is the charitable deduction and whether or not you want an income stream. Got it. Also, um, yeah, charitable may also offer a little more degree of control over your assets, whereas a donor advised fund, you surrender complete the asset completely to the charity with a CRT, you could name yourself as trustee and have some degree of control over the assets. Still,
1: got it. That's a great summary, Joe. So, um, couple couple different ways. To, there's different options available depending on the, the degree of control you want to have, uh, the size of the deduction you want, whether you need an income, whether you need or, or want an income stream, um, and and what level of cost you're kind of comfortable bearing on an on an ongoing basis. Um well, and Joe, this has been really helpful. Is there anything I didn't ask about about donor advice funds that you think people should know that you'd like them to know?
0: I would say the only, uh, I would add uh, private foundations, you know, and how they, um, you can have private foundations can make gifts to donor advice funds. And I've seen in some of the um, uh, large, like families that have, um, have had a family foundation for a long time, um, they'll have, a specific cause or, or group of causes that the family in, in general wants to focus on, and that works great. And individual people may have their own causes. They don't necessarily want to take it. So you'll see that the um, uh, set donor advice funds for some of the um, the family members to be able to make their own grants to whoever they want. You see, it's just a great compliment in a lot of different ways. Um, the DAF can be a compliment to the uh, private foundation that the foundation can do uh, make grants to the donor advice fund. So if you are having trouble getting rid of the five percent, that's an option. Um, you can um, also complex assets going into the donor advice fund instead of the private foundation may make more sense from a tax perspective as well. So the DAF can be a nice complement to to the private foundation.
1: Yeah, some some great additional thoughts and and use cases there. Um, So my last question for you, tell us a little bit about REN and including where folks can go to learn more about what you do.
0: All right, we're um, headquartered in Indianapolis, Indiana. Started in 1987 with the focus being on charitable trusts. And now we've uh, become the largest philanthropic solutions provider in the U.S., independent philanthropic solution provider in the U.S. Uh, to learn more about us, you can go to Renning.com or shoot us an email at consulting at com.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I'll put links I'll put links to their website uh, in the show okay. notes. Um, and be sure to reach out if you have interests or questions about setting up a yes. donor-advised fund. Kim, uh,
0: yeah. Joe, Good this has been time. great. I
1: want to thank. Thank you both for coming on the show. Uh, Really insightful. Thank you.
0: Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.